2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast channel, New Books Network. I am Mini Sony, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to professor of English at Western Kentucky University, the author of Learning a Foreign Language, Understanding the Fundamentals of Linguistics, which was published in 2020. Alex Poole, welcome to the show. Uh, professor Poole, tell us a little about yourself. Your, and your own fascination with foreign language acquisition, and the difficulties you encountered in learning new languages, your extrinsic and intrinsic motivations, as you outline in your book.
1: Well, thank you for having me. Um, I think of my, uh, re- my own fascination with language acquisition really has three phases. One uh, has to do with the people that I grew up with. And so I grew up with a lot of multilinguals. Uh, My grandparents, my father's parents spoke French. My grandfather actually studied music um, in the teens and the twenties in France. And he met my grandmother in Detroit and she was studying French. And they wrote, we have letters, they wrote in French to each other. Um, They loved the French language. They were big Francophiles. Um, And my grandmother also spoke Russian. Um, she could read Hebrew. And my father grew up um, with an extended family in this house. He grew up with his grandparents and his uncle. And um, my, grandp- my great-grandparents, they knew very little English. They spoke primarily Yiddish. And so my father would always talk about that. And I would hear my grandmother uh, saying things to him in Yiddish. So I always had that. But also I had a lot of friends whose parents were from different places or whose grandparents were. They were not um, US born. So um, some of my best friends, their parents uh, spoke Urdu and Sindhi. Um, So I always heard those languages growing up. Um, The grandparents of another friend spoke Arabic and Frisian, which is a language in Friesland, an island or a section of Holland. And so that was really the first part I would say the second part was growing up in the late 70s and 80s, um, you know, especially growing up in the American Midwest where the winters are cold and you can't really do much during the winter, I had a pretty active fantasy life which consisted of watching lots of movies. And a lot of those movies were Cold War movies. And so I would watch James Bond. I would watch people um, you know, in these spy thrillers speaking several languages. And I always thought that that was really neat Um, And and these were people in general that I thought were smart, that I thought were sophisticated, that I thought were worldly. And of course, the connection to that um, was traveling. And so uh, I got to meet a lot of friends traveling who spoke many different languages and it made me feel inspired. It also made me feel insecure, Um, but it, it really motivated me to be like them. But I would say that my biggest motivation Um, came when I met my wife, who is from Colombia, and the motivation there was really intrinsic. Um, I really found the Spanish language fascinating, but it was also extrinsic uh, because my in-laws didn't, they don't speak any English. And so in order to have a relationship with them, I had to speak Spanish. And I would say up until, and this is part of the motivation for this book, until I really knew about what language acquisition, what second language acquisition research consisted of, I would really have called myself a, a failed language learner. I started many languages and I stopped them because I became demoralized. I thought they were too difficult. I thought it was a failure. So I studied about three or four other languages and got to the intermediate level and then just stopped because I really had no model for how this was done.
2: Okay, so it's been a kind of unconventional Uh, upbringing and youth, one would say. Tell us a little about your book. Well,
1: the book really is kind of, I mean, in a certain way, it's kind of written for people like me um, or people like me. There are really two groups that I'm looking at. Uh, One, well, the, the overall group is people who want to learn a language but don't really know how, and I'm very much focusing on monolinguals. Because most, you know, it's interesting, most second language acquisition research is published in English, which is a language which is, you know, multi, I mean, people from all over the world speak it, but most of the native speakers are monolingual. And so most of this material suffers from two problems. One is that it's written for specialists and is extremely technical and perhaps not too engaging to people who are not like us, who are really interested in it. And so they find it dry, they find it hard to read, and they just, you know, they don't gain much from it. And the other one is in the English speaking world, there are a lot of books written basically um, based upon anecdotes, um, people's individual evidence or their experiences learning a language and I think they overpromise that. So do this, and this will happen. If you do this, you can learn a language fluently in a number of months. You can master any number of languages. And multilinguals, you know, will laugh at those things because they know that you you actually are a language learner for life. Um, it doesn't stop. You don't just master a language, then move on to the next one. There's always something to know. And so I wanted to reach out to people like this specifically, you know, high school students who wanna learn a language, university students who wanna learn a language and adults who are, you know, out of the university setting very interested in doing it. And so I cover the major topics um, in second language acquisition and such such as motivation, aptitude, um, grammar and vocabulary, the role of heirs, strategy, cultural awareness and self-assessment. So really what I wanted to do is boil those down, give people an understanding of them so they could be uh, self-motivated, uh, self-directed learners so they would understand the process and not quit like I did. Yeah,
2: that's... Uh, what do you think is the main difference between Americans and others when it comes to foreign language learning?
1: Well, the, my, 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 my uh, doctoral advisor, the late, great Dr. Ravi Shorey, um, he was from India, and in, in he always used to tell me, Alex, if any Indian says he speaks five languages, don't be impressed. It's normal. And so he really instilled in me the sense of language as being a natural thing. It is not something exceptional. It is something very normal. Uh, but most Americans, on the other hand, especially those who are inspired to learn a language, Um, they, you know, they think of it as almost something mystical. Um, And they're like, wow, it takes a genius to learn this. And that's not true. Another way is that we do not know how to study it. And so we have bad beliefs about learning another language, learning a foreign language. One of them is that we study it like any other school subject. And so it's particularly for strong students, this can be very detrimental. What do I mean by that? They're used to doing very well, learning the material, passing an exam with high marks, and then going on to the next thing. And as we know, language doesn't work that way. It involves looking foolish. It involves making errors. It involves making mistakes. It involves a long time where you feel very ignorant, and a lot of Americans do not realize that. Um, Another has to do with, I think, the techniques and this is related to studying like you would any other subject, a lot of people will do things like memorizing lists of words, trying to quote unquote master the grammar. Uh, These are really things which just lead to frustration and really boredom. And so most people who uh, really want to learn a language will start off with this blast of intensity, and then they will just say, well, you know, I I tried this. But to be fair to Americans and to Brits, um, and to Australians, and, and most people who live in a monolingual, monolingual world, we don't have the access in spite of the internet and so forth to native speakers or that sort of tension to learn a language. So um, whereas let's say European, like a Swede, they will have textbooks in English. And of course, in India, English is a national language. So you use it to communicate within the country. We don't really have anything like that. When Americans go abroad to study languages, many times people say, well, that's okay, you can just speak English to me, or the people, in fact, get angry because they want to study English and speak English. And so Americans have a tough time really trying to learn the language. But also, um, a lot of parents and peers are not particularly supportive. So a lot of people will really have to become almost obsessed with the language because uh, many people say, well, why are you doing that? And so the support really many times is not there. Now, there's one exception to that, and that is Spanish. Spanish is abundant in the United States. There are tons of opportunities to encounter native speakers of Spanish who do not speak English, who are very appreciative who uh, that you try to speak some Spanish. So I think that that's the one exception there. But for the rest of them, if you're trying to learn Russian or German, it's, you know, you're really going to have to be self-directed.
2: Uh, yes, I tend to agree with you there. Sometimes I just feel, though, that when uh, people like the Americans or the Brits, they sit down to learn a language, they probably do it scientifically. And the ones, like I are saying, that they're obsessed with it and then they do it very well. It's not just a smattering of five languages that they have. It's my point of view. But anyway... Since you have to talk about your book and the research, we go on to the next question.
1: Well, if I, if I can just add that um, you will see that Americans who, if you see them in India, are learning an Indian language, or they're learning Spanish, uh, they just don't learn the language. It's almost as if many times they become that, and they get so deep into the culture. Um, you know, many times they will end up marrying someone from that culture, and in a certain way, other people who have access um, to languages may not understand that. They're like, what is this person? It just seems like they're in love with this place. You kind of have to be. You kind of have to be. You can't just go back and say, well, I'm going to do a little bit of this, study a little bit of this language. You have to find this connection to it all the time. And I I found that myself. I mean, you know, my wife for me is like a walking dictionary and grammar book. Um, And so I'm always asking her questions and we always talk about things and you know it's it, it becomes an, an, an obsession um yeah.
2: yeah 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 i agree with you they managed to get into the skin of other people in a less self-conscious way because actually what they're there to learn is the language the, the greatest anthropologists have been from the west as well i mean anthropology is a discipline which It began in the West, so maybe the caveats to that. The other question I wanted to ask was, is learning one language properly, grammar, rules, and all, useful in learning other languages?
1: Absolutely. Um, Multilinguals definitely have an advantage. And so one thing is that they know the process. And so they have experience Do this. And so this benefits them intellectually, but it also benefits them emotionally. And these are two key aspects of language acquisition. So intellectually, they kind of have built in strategies to do this. Now, many of them, you know, you could actually say they're so built in their skills, they don't know what they're doing explicitly, but they're doing it. So they know what to do when they encounter a situation where they don't understand. They know how to negotiate for meaning. They know where to go to acquire um, new vocabulary. They have this, this background um, with them. They also know what to expect. And so they know that they're going to run into grammar that's hard. Some grammar is harder than others. Sometimes um, they're going to be backtracking where they think, well, I know this. And then, you know, they say something and it doesn't come out right. And they kind of move on. They're like, OK, well, you know, the people understand me and I'm working hard at it. And that's fine. Uh, Americans really don't have that. They don't know what is correct. And so they'll think I have to get everything 100% correct at the time. Or there's something wrong with me. There's some sort of problem. I'm a failure. I'm stupid. I don't know anything. I'm no good at this. It's like my father. Uh, it's, just, it's very funny. He considers himself monolingual. But I was telling himself Dad, you're not monolingual. You are bilingual. You understand Yiddish quite well, and you can communicate on a basic level. and But he doesn't consider that you know the same because he doesn't speak it perfectly. Um, emotionally, though, multilinguals are much better off because they calm down. Um, they don't have so much anxiety about the process. And so it was actually interesting. I referred to my mentor who is from India, and he said in his native language, which was Marathi, and I don't know. I don't know if this is still true or not, but he said, we really don't have a word for language anxiety. You might feel tension, um, but you don't have anxiety as such. And if you're feeling that much anxiety, and for Americans, you have the opportunity to bail out. And this is something that other people do not have. They have to learn the language in order to survive. They need it in order to pass an examination. They need it to go to medical school. They need it to run a business. Most of us don't need it. And so if that anxiety is too overwhelming, um, they really, uh, you know, they really get overwhelmed and then they just fail. And, and, and something also intuitive is that, that Americans many times don't understand is that we, we have different registers of the language. We have intellectual language, we have book language, then we have language of the street. And so I'll meet many students who have studied a foreign language and they'll say, gosh, I went there and I thought I could speak pretty well, but no one... Everyone was laughing at me because they said, well, we don't say that. Well, it's because they've learned a rather bookish type of Spanish or French or German or what have you. Multilinguals know, hey, this is the language you use in the marketplace. This is the language you use at school.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. See, the other thing is also that Americans possibly put themselves in situations which are challenging and which they didn't think would be. Whereas, say... You know, a person from another country, like a Chinese person or a Japanese, wouldn't do that because he'd have forms from the beginning that he shouldn't throw himself out into the ocean without proper safeguards. That's just an opinion. I wonder what you think. But it's fascinating what you're telling us. And and
1: I also think something else is that sometimes Americans tend to overestimate the speed with which, and this goes back to beliefs, they overestimate the speed with which they can acquire language, and so there was an article written several years ago um, that talked about it cited an example of this where um, a student said, "I'm going to go to Russia for the summer and learn Russian now for anybody who knows another language, this is quite hilarious that you could start Russian in the summer and come back knowing all of Russian. It just doesn't happen that way um and so that is you know that that's something that, that 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 really is a hindrance to a lot of americans and then they get demoralized and then they think well i don't need to you know uh, this was just not for me um yeah so i think that's yeah
2: and possibly they also don't learn a language for completely utilitarian reasons like in many parts of the world today we have outsourcing centers Like, I mean, in India, you know, you have outsourcing centers, which so people learn English and Spanish properly in order to work in these companies. But in the U.S., that's not the case. They possibly learn the language and it's a hobby for them. You know, they want to read a novel in Russian, like you said, and that's the most difficult thing to do.
1: Yes. and And, you know, reading the literature of a language and, you know, the fiction, the poetry is really, as you said, the most difficult thing to do. But it's also in many times, you know, and I love reading Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and I love reading other Latin American Spanish authors, but really uh, most native speakers are not using a lot of that vocabulary. Um, And this is one of the things I've been very critical about U.S. foreign language instruction is that you go from basic to intermediate to trying to read Don Quixote. And you don't even know how to ask for a fork at a restaurant or negotiate, you know, directions on the street. Um, And I think, well, geez, you know, that's nice that you know how to get through a piece of literature that's more than 500 years old. But if you have no functionality in the language, um, it really it's not a practical tool at all. And that, I think, is is a big problem for a lot of people.
2: Yeah, that's very interesting, I guess. Without immersion courses in another culture functionality in language learning doesn't happen automatically by just attending a, a, a classroom session of the language. Well, the other question I wanted to ask you was that you have a final chapter titled, Assess Yourself. Explain to us how, can, how one can assess one's own competence in a foreign language.
1: Well, um, I think the big issue behind, I'd like first to say, Why is this so important? And the reason is, is because self-assessment really helps you become, and this is the overall goal of the book, this helps you become an autonomous learner. So that is, you can direct your own learning. And as I've said throughout this whole discussion, Americans will need to do that. You will really need to be motivated. You really need to be self-directed if you're going to do this. And so what you really need to do or what people need to do is you need to look at what you're doing, find out if it's working and make changes if necessary. And doing this also is motivating because you can see your progress. A lot of people won't notice the progress that they're making. And then they'll say, well, I'm still not at the level of where I can feel comfortable going into a restaurant and talking to a waiter. But gosh, you know, they don't realize it's a heck of a lot better than it was before. Um, so I think, you know, people should not make this complicated, you know, don't do things which require mental gymnastics. So one of the things that people can do is think about their goals. Um, and let's take, let's take, uh, speaking, for example. Um, and you could, in that case for your speaking abilities, you could assess a specific speaking performance, for example, interacting with a waiter. So in this case, you can make a checklist of things which are important to you during that time. For example, clarity, fluency, and accuracy. After you finish, you can use a scale about the effectiveness of how you did these and write small notes about why they were or were not successful, and then think about how you can improve them. So that's one thing you can do. You can assess a specific performance, in this case, speaking. But you can also assess your general performance from time to time. Um, Speaking, writing, listening, speaking. So what you could do is keep a daily diary of things which matter to you. So what's important accuracy, fluency, clarity, Uh, and then look at them after a certain period of time, let's say two months, and see what your progress has been, and then make uh, plans to do better. But a third area is and this is something that very few people think about, is to assess your engagement itself with the language. So we tend to focus on output, that is our use of the language only. But we know from research that merely interacting with the language, getting what Stephen Krashen calls comprehensible input, is beneficial and can be quite an accomplishment, especially for people who are busy. So for example, if your goal is to read two books a month, watch three movies and listen to five podcasts, you can make a simple checklist of yes and no. If you're not able to achieve these things, you can think about a variety of reasons why and make changes. So for example, are my goals realistic given the time constraints that I have? Um, Am I not making enough time for these activities? How can I change my schedule? Uh, Maybe the materials are too difficult and you're spending too much time on, let's say, a a podcast on a topic you don't really understand, and that's not benefiting you. So you can do those types of things. And it it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be, you know, a a statistician, you don't have to have great qualifications in psychometrics, you can just, you know, look, self-analyze yourself.
2: So in a way, language learning is practice every day, right? And that's what you wanted to say in your book as well, that uh, you wanted to distance yourself from offering a remedy, which is all encom- encompassing, and instead talk a little about uh, the, the daily way that a person learns a language in the day-to-day, and also something about linguistics as well. Uh, tell us a little about your next project, if it is also in this area.
1: Well, I mean, I have two projects coming up. And one of them is, you know, I've, I've kind of started already, is to write a language memoir of my own language learning, which really exemplifies these things. And I have a lot of um, notes from my previous learning, when I failed to learn a language, what were the reasons why, and to give people examples of, you know, how you shouldn't get demoralized and how to deal with things. So for example, I remember when I was learning Russian, and I encountered a guy who had uh, come to the United States when he was a small child, but he still spoke Russian quite well. And I was saying some things in Russian. And I said, well, I can start a conversation. And he said, well, you know, um, that's not bad, but you have a very thick American accent. And I remember I just felt destroyed by that. And that's not something that you should um, really, you know, get demoralized about because we all have accents. I, I can't avoid that. You can't avoid that no language learner after a certain age can avoid that. Um, So I want to write something like that to exemplify how this has worked in real time with me, other than the examples um, that I have in the book. And another one is something related to language, but it's actually quite different, is I want to write a a book about punctuation usage, especially for beginning writers at the university level. And so um, I want it, it to be very practical uh, because most people punctuation, they don't get a lot of punctuation instruction. And if they do, they're very simplified rules, but they're not very helpful. And so a lot of learners from the data I have so far um, will think that incredibly complex uh, pieces of punctuation are easy. So for example, the comma, the comma is extremely complex. It has so many usages, and they differ depending on the type of text you're you're writing. But then they'll think something like the colon, which actually is used in very few cases, is difficult. And so that's something um, that I kind of want to address because writing is so difficult in any language and especially punctuation, that is something that we barely get to in the classroom.
2: Both projects are fascinating. The first one also because it will give comfort and solace to so many would-be language learners throughout the world. And the second one, as a language teacher, I completely agree with you that writing a new language is one of the most arduous things. Still late in life, you still have to ask a native speaker to correct your work, Oh, yes. (laughs) And you probably also know that as well when you write in Spanish.
1: Absolutely. Yes, I'll have my I'll have my wife. I'll say, um, is this go? Is this accent right? I think it's right. I just can't remember now. She said, no, no, no. You you don't you don't put an accent there. Whoops. Um, it just is is. Uh, and and my daughters have this advantage of growing up bilingual, and they've read a lot in Spanish, and um, they speak Spanish. And even though they're heritage speakers of Spanish. They have a much better sense of this intuitively than I do, and it makes me very jealous. Um, but, you know, that's the reality, and we have to face it.
2: Professor Poole, thank you so much for your time. I've learned so much, and I'm sure our listeners will also have gained valuable insights. I wish your book great success, learning a foreign language. It's been riveting for me at least. And I I, I kept looking and find, trying to find, uh, you know, reasons why I, I thought about language learning in a particular way. So your book is a kind of great start to your next projects as well. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you for having me.